people need to go out. Now, you can't go to a bar, you can't go to the cinemas, right? Um, Singapore is very small. It's not as if you can go to a next state to go hiking or whatever. So what's left and what do we love? Food, right? So the restaurants are doing famously well at the moment, uh, which is really, really nice to see. I'm Danny Vallant, and this is Dirty Linen, the podcast that takes the issues the hospitality industry finds hard to air in public and shakes them all about. Today on Dirty Linen, we are heading to one of the world's best food cities, Singapore, and Annette Tan. Annette runs Fatfuku. She's going to tell us more about that. She's a fellow food writer, a lover of eating. She welcomes people into her home for dinners. And I am really thrilled to have her here to give us the lowdown on what's happening in Singapore right now. Welcome, Annette. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Tell me what Fatfuku is. Um, so Fatfuku is a, um, I guess what you guys would call a supper club. Here in Singapore, it's um, better known as a private dining establishment. So essentially, I cook meals and serve them in my home. And people can make reservations to just come in and, and have a meal, really. Right. So uh, obviously, we're in a global pandemic. It sounds like it's uh, not the best place to have a group of people over to eat. So tell me what the situation is in Singapore. Give us a bit of a rundown of what's happened in Singapore uh, this year. So at this point, the situation is pretty under control. I think uh, Singaporeans have um, started you know, going back to normal as much as normal is these days. Um, so a lot of us work from home and um, and alternate between the office, say one week in the office, one week at home. Um, people are dining out like as much as possible, <laughs> even though we are restricted to reservations of um, no more than five people at each uh, table. Um yeah, the parks are open, uh, people can go back to the gym in limited numbers. So life is pretty much as normal as it gets in these times here, really. Okay. So there are still, I think, around 50 cases a day in Singapore. But uh, we we heard in Australia, you know, Singapore was one of the big success stories in quashing COVID. But then just as we've had here in Melbourne, you had a second wave. Can you talk about the nature of that second wave? Um, I don't know about a second wave per se. Um, so maybe just to explain a little bit about kind of how things are categorized here. Um, as most people know, Singapore has a large uh, migrant population that was very affected by COVID because they live in pretty crowded dormitories. So in that uh, population of migrant workers. We've had the hugest numbers. I, I can't give you the exact numbers of um, of how many of them have gotten it, but um, in comparison to the Singaporean community who who live outside of these uh, dormitories, the numbers are huge, right? So, as far as I know, yesterday um, we had only one new case in the community. Um, we had 13 imported cases, so these are people who maybe have just returned to Singapore and they've been um, and they've been spotted based on the tests that they all have to take when they come into the country. Um, yeah, so we have uh, 76 people in hospital at the moment, and um, community facilities, which would include the dorms uh, and yeah, I guess the dorms. Um, they're like 2,000, so you can see the big difference between. Um, 
the general population, if you will, and people, uh, then the migrant population, yeah. And so that migrant population where there's perhaps a few dozen cases a day, are they pretty much locked down still while the rest of the city goes about life more or less normally? Yes. <laughs> it's a bit embarrassing to say, but yes. <laughs> oh, well, it's just, I mean, every country has to deal with it differently depending on their own circumstances. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, it does sound pretty harsh, I guess, that a, a sector of society is locked down, whereas others aren't. I mean, I guess we had a, you know, a, a different but analogous situation in Melbourne where there was, a, you know, a great controversy because we had some public housing towers that were locked down, whereas the rest of the city was in, you know, a certain number, of, you know, certain restrictions, but this was a, a harder lockdown. So, I mean, yeah, it, it is it is really harsh. And I suppose one of the things that the pandemic has done is it's highlighted inequalities in society, hasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, more so here for us, you know, it's brought it's always been something that Singaporeans um know but don't really talk about how the fact that these migrant workers who are in Singapore and are pretty much building the infrastructure for us live in pretty dismal conditions. And um if nothing else, COVID has really brought into very stark relief how they live and the difference between how they are treated and how we are treated. Mm. So I know that a lot of the migrants that live in Singapore are Bangladeshi. Are there are other large national groups that are staying in those um, in those hostels or yeah, whatever you call them, dormitories? I think the largest population are the Bangladeshis. There are some Chinese, um, you know, if I'm not wrong, uh, smaller numbers from Nepal and, and things like that and Burma and um, or Myanmar. Um, but the, the largest population in that uh, community are the Bangladeshis. Okay. And you said that they're doing a lot of construction in the city. Are they also the um, housemaids or is that more people from other parts? No, the housemaids, um, yeah, they're mainly Filipino, Indonesians. Um, yeah, those are the two dominant group in ter- groups in terms of uh, domestic workers. Okay, and they've just stayed in their domestic situations right through? Pretty much. They live with the families. They have to live with the families that they work for. So, you know, they, they quarantine with the rest of the family. Got it, yeah. it's um, When I think about Singapore, I think about, you know, bustling streets, the hawker markets, of course, and it's really hard to think about a city that is so food-driven. I mean, honestly, you could, you could stop anyone on the street or anyone that you meet and you could stand there for about five hours and talk about food. Actually, that's not true because you would get dragged by them to about six different places to eat the food that we were talking <laughs> about, right? So Very true, yes. <laughs> so when you had the initial um, shutdown, can you talk about what that was like? Because I just can't imagine it. So shutdown was, was tough for everyone. I think just before shutdown um, we had uh, – these announcements about how, you know, now there are restrictions and going to the supermarket and and all of that before they locked down, before they really locked down the city. So we had, like many other uh, countries, people running to the supermarket. There were queues in the markets and the supermarkets, people were hoarding food and all of that. And then when they finally did lock us down, essentially things like, uh, essentially the restaurants now had to pivot to deliveries, right? Um, Same for the hawkers. So a lot of, um, there was a lot of community help, which was really nice. So people set up groups because, you know, the hawkers are largely run by um, older folk who are not technologically driven. So it was hard for them to, um, even if they wanted to do delivery and, and take orders 
they, they obviously wouldn't know how to. So there were several groups of people who came and, and came together and said, okay, we're going to volunteer and help, you know, the hawkers start websites or, or ordering systems so that they could do it quickly. They could pivot quickly and people could order with ease and get the food delivered. Um, with the restaurants, a lot of them did their own thing and, and pivoted themselves. Uh, and then we had like delivery services, um, in particular, a company called Oddle. And um, they helped a lot of restaurants pivot to island-wide delivery. So Singaporeans, as you know, love to eat. So, of course, people started um, ordering food because they couldn't go out, but they needed to eat food that was not cooked by themselves, obviously. So, you know, um, delivery and, and all that became suddenly became the norm. And, and a, a lot of restaurants, um, it became their bread and butter, so to speak. What what was really nice um, to see is that people started sending each other food, right? Because in Singapore, it's the one thing you bond over, food. Um, you go out and eat with your friends, you, you talk to strangers about food, as you said earlier. So what happened was, um, and it was especially apparent on Instagram, was that people would would either cook something really nice and send it to their friends and family, and even to people that they didn't know but had met on Instagram. Um, <laughs> That's I, so nice. <laughs> yeah, I for one started a um, like a community project encouraging people to buy food from restaurants because you know obviously the restaurants were suffering, especially and this was especially in the beginning of the lockdown, and um, it really pained me to see restaurateurs who are my friends you know, wondering how their business was going to carry on because, you know, two months before the lockdown, already people had stopped going out and, and things like that. So they were already losing money. So um, I started something called My Treat, which encourages people to buy a restaurant meal and send it to a friend. I love that. All in the name of, <laughs> thank you, all in the name of, you know, supporting their favorite businesses because you we didn't know how long a lockdown was going to last. And when it did lift, whether our favorite businesses would still be around. So, um, you know, if you asked me to buy myself a, a $30 lunch, I might not do it. But if you said, you know, a friend, she's not, she, she's alone, she's feeling down, would you, would I buy her lunch? Absolutely. So that was kind of the premise, yeah, of, of um, encouraging people to buy each other lunch. Um, so in the, very quickly after, um, and I'm not saying that I started any of this trend, but very quickly, uh, we noticed that more and more Singaporean foodies especially were buying each other meals, right? And they would post it on Instagram. And I also noticed a community of food lovers on Instagram who had never met in person, but they started connecting on Instagram and they would discover something new, this new hawker, that this hawker that was... Um, say purveying some really special dish and this person would buy 10 of these and send it to these people that they've spoken to but had never met on Instagram right and they're all Singaporeans oh I love it so much so that was really nice to see yeah uh, Annette tell me about some of your favorite Singaporean food like if you've got a favorite hawker or a favorite little restaurant that you can just make me make me salivate as you tell me about it <laughs> um <laughs> My favorite food, well, one of the things I love, love to eat is uh, prawn noodles, um, which you can find in just about every coffee shop uh, or hawker center in Singapore. So there's one near my house. Um, it's called 
famous traditional prawn noodles. <laughs> um, it's not actually it's not it's not actually famous, <laughs> but it's traditional, <laughs> and the noodles are really good. So it's just down the road from my house in a in a very unassuming uh, hawker center, and that's where I go when I'm not out eating at a restaurant uh, for work. Um, and you was sorry, you were asking me about my favorite restaurants in Singapore. Well, it just tell it just go a bit deeper and tell us what what prawn noodles are like. What, yeah, and, and what makes a good one? Okay, so traditionally prawn noodles are um, yellow wheat noodles, and they come in this uh, really really rich prawn stock, like a, a consomme, but really really packed with prawn shells and uh, a stock made of prawn shells, and sometimes they add a little bit of um, dried orange peel and pork bones and things like that. So it's a really, really robust mm. stock. Um, and it's served with fresh prawns, some, uh, you know, some pork, and always with a really nice chili sauce that comes with it. Um, yeah. Oh, sounds so good. And it's one of those comforting things. <laughs> it's one of those comforting things that you would just, you know, it's a, it's a bowl that costs $3.50 to $5, and it's a quick and very, very satisfying lunch. So good. And did anybody send you, send you any food uh, during lockdown? Well, because of the nature of my work, I literally got food three times a day from various from various <laughs> restaurants or, you know, people who... <laughs> it was crazy. You had to eat a lot to support the restaurants. I did. And um, my neighbours too, obviously, because, you know, <laughs> I'm a single person. I live... You know, I, there's only so much I can eat. So every day my doorbell would ring, you know, at lunch and maybe in the middle of the afternoon and then just before dinner. And um, all my neighbors would be like, what's next? <laughs> because we got some really, really good food. Wow. You are the right person to be next to in lockdown. <laughs> Absolutely. I can't argue with that because I had way too much food. When I think about Singapore and the hawker markets there, I mean, it's, there are already quite a few rules. Like it's very hygienic. Uh, yeah, you feel like everything's super clean and you can be very confident eating anywhere, I reckon. is um, I mean, but, but what's changed with the rules around COVID? So more than anything, there are less seats. So social distancing is a big thing here. Um, they reconfigured it such that um, if, say, there was a table of five, now you can seat only three at that table. And then perhaps the table beside it um, is, has been blocked off so that people can't sit down too close to one another. Uh, same thing if you're queuing up for food, you have to keep like a meter's distance between the next person. And we have what we call social distance ambassadors ah. <laughs> who who sort of patrol uh, the restaurants and the and the hawker centers to make sure that people adhere to these um, to people make sure people wear their mask and adhere to the social distancing imperatives. Oh, that's so interesting. So they're employed by the government or does each hawker centre employ the social distance centre? No, they're employed by the government. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, they're, they're employed by the government. So they're in like the wet markets, which as you might know, are really crowded in the mornings, right? Yeah. So they're, they're sort of in all the, the high traffic areas um, where people go to eat or, you know, the gyms and things like that. Um, we, the government has also uh, started a new quality mark called SG Clean, and basically uh, companies—well, not companies, sorry—restaurants, F&B establishments, hawkers can all apply uh, to be certified SG Clean. So there's like a checklist of seven seven different things where they um, 
you know, that they have to do like sanitize tables after every use. And if you're a bigger establishment, you sanitize tables every hour, things like that to make sure that, you know, the industry standard is at a pretty high level uh, collectively. Yeah, right. Uh, interesting. Um, so here we've got people going around sanitizing tram stops and public areas. Uh, is it a job creation program as well as uh, keeping people safe? Yes, very much so. I think um, a lot of the ambassadors, you know, they, they, a lot of people who may have lost their jobs or are taking um, a hiatus from work because of COVID. Um, so, yeah, it does, it does create a good number of jobs. Mm. So Singapore's bar culture is also, you know, something that people go there for. It, how are the bars at the moment? Are they open as normal? Oh, the bars are suffering a little bit more um, because uh, they are only allowed to serve or any establishment is only allowed to serve alcohol up to 10.30. After 10.30, literally, you have to put your glasses down. Do not drink because a social ambassador is going to come in and find you. <laughs> And oh, that wow. has happened before. <laughs> um, you know, people have tried to, to sort of push the limits a little bit. So there have been cases where um, the entire establishment has been fine because guests wouldn't listen uh, or been forced to close for a couple of days, you know, as, as, a, as a lesson, really. Um, so, yeah, people are very mindful of that now that, you know, if they say that 10.30, they don't mean 10.35, <laughs> So the bars are, yeah. So the bars are suffering a little, a little bit more. Some of them are pivoting uh, to delivery. Um, some of them are doing um, collaborations with restaurants. You know, so they serve cocktails uh, as part of a meal, perhaps. Um, but whatever it is, they all have to close at ten. They all have to stop serving alcohol at ten thirty. Right. So not the nightlife that people have been used to in Singapore in the past. But it's it's also such an international city. I mean, Singapore is such an international city and, I mean, it must, yeah, I mean, I'm assuming the borders are more or less closed. Pretty much, yeah, unless um, unless people are coming in because they've been locked down in another city and they have family here or they're studying here, you know, those sorts of cases. But otherwise, yes, the borders are closed. So without foreign visitors, are the restaurants still having enough custom to keep them going? Oh, the restaurants are doing so well, <laughs> which is really nice to see because, you know, um, before the lockdown, like I said, restaurants were doing terribly, right? So you had maybe January to, to April where COVID, we, we first started seeing COVID maybe like January to February, right? And people stopped, sort of stopped going out as much. Um, from February onwards. So the restaurants had been suffering for a good three or four months before we got locked down. But then once lockdown lifted, people just like lockdown lifted somewhere, uh, I think 19th of June, if I'm not wrong. And um, immediately after that, people were allowed to go to restaurants and we're talking like um, groups of five. So you can only go out in groups of five, right? Uh, and in July, most of the restaurants uh, reported the highest sales that they've done. I mean, either ever really <laughs> because people were just so starved for going out to eat and it being the summer holidays um, for many of the expats who would typically leave Singapore to travel um, they're all here so people need to go out now you can't go to a bar you can't go to the cinemas right um, Singapore is very small it's not as if you can go to a next state to go hiking or whatever so 
what's left and what do we love? Food, right? So the restaurants are doing famously well at the moment, uh, which is really, really nice to see. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good to hear. And it's also so encouraging that with the restaurants doing so well, albeit with some restrictions, that there isn't that community transmission among the, um, yeah, among restaurants. It's so heartening to hear that. Uh, that it's you're able to keep uh, it under control really um, yeah gives me hope for what happens uh, and continues to happen in us in Australia it's really good yeah that's the thing right you never know well it just sounds like it's you've yeah, you've got your ambassadors, you've got your rules, you've got people who want to eat and want to be able to continue eating and supporting restaurants. So it just sounds like, yeah, you've really got it got it sorted. So I'm really, really happy to hear it. What about the supper clubs, Annette? Have you started having people back to your home? So same with the restaurant. So um, you can only have no more than five people in your home at once. So where I used to serve between uh, six to nine people, each evening, I now take only five. But I'm pleased to say that I'm fully booked <laughs> for, for the next month or so. So. so, Annette, tell me if I come to one of your supper club dinners, what would I expect? What kind of food are you going to serve me? Does everyone know each other or am I meeting new people? Like what's the scenario? Okay, so for starters, um, reservations are for a group of, um, well, five at the moment because of COVID restrictions. Um, but the reservations would, sorry, the reservation would be under one person. So you come and you bring your own group of friends, right? Yeah. So you're dining with people you already know. Um, the kind of food I serve, I'm Puranakan, so I serve Puranakan food. I don't know if um, everyone is familiar with what Puranakan food is. Uh, it's basically a sort of a melange of... Um, Flavors influenced by Southeast Asia, so it's a sing uh, it's Chinese, Malay, a bit of Malay, Indonesian influences in the food. So it's quite spicy, um, very very robust cuisine, uh, and I try to modernize it a little bit, uh, mainly by by changing up the cooking technique. So it's a little bit more modern. In the past, you would say pound, you would pound lots of spices to make um, a curry. Uh, I don't pound spices. <laughs> I don't have the time to pound spices and have two jobs. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so um, like, for instance, my mother would have pounded the spices and cooked the food over a stove over a very long period of time. Um, so what I do is I blend the spices and then uh, some of it I cook on the stove, but I tend to make my braises um, the, the Western way, which is in like a Dutch oven, cover with a cartouche and, and stewed in the oven for a couple of hours. So the flavors are exactly the same. The flavors are very traditional, but because the cooking methods are slightly different, the textures are also a little bit different. And I just try to do a couple of small twists here and there um, just to keep things interesting. Oh, I love it. So the, what's the next menu? What are you going to be serving? So when I first started, um, my first menu I didn't really know what I was doing, to be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> it was really lots of people, people would say, you know, you should have people over because I entertained a lot. And people would say, I would love to bring my friends over to, to eat your food and stuff like that. So one day I decided, you know what, I'm just going to try, try this, right? So um, I knew that I wanted the food to be slightly different. So one of the things I, I first made was uh, misiam, which is a spicy uh, rice vermicelli noodle that is typically served in a spicy broth. Um, so what I did was I made the same exact same spice mix, you know, I made the exact same broth, but instead of just having noodles in the broth, 
I sort of made like a noodle rosti. So I pan fry the spiced noodles into like a, a crispy pancake. And then I put a prawn and quail egg sambal on top. And I serve the broth beside it. Oh, so good. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so that became such a huge hit that I can't not make it because people actually get upset when they come to dinner and they're like, what do you mean that's not on the menu? <laughs> so that's always on the menu. Um, another dish that's almost always on the menu is uh, a dish called pork belly bakloa biryani. So bakloa is this um, black nut that comes from Indonesia. It's very much a delicacy in Indonesian, Malay, and Singaporean cuisine. Um, so I make like a pork belly braise with this uh, with a spice mix and this nut. So I guess the closest thing uh, to uh, a, something similar in the Western world would be like a mole. So it's very dark and and um, uh, almost bitter. Yeah. So it's very similar to a mole, but with just different spices. And then I serve it on a bit of uh, rice that has been cooked in the similar spice mix, um, but in a biryani style. So at the end of the, the cooking, the rice gets um, some shallots and cashews that have been fried in ghee, sort of tossed through it. So you get that, that very rich um, buttery aroma. Uh, and, and that's one of the main dishes as well. And those are the two things that are pretty much always on the menu, unless you've come here several times, then I would say, okay, let me make you something different. <laughs> okay. I love it because um, I remember when I was in Penang, like I guess the Peranakan food is such a big part of the of what people eat there. Uh, but it's, I mean, I guess it's it, it's so characteristic to have all these different influences in that food and it feels to me like you're taking that forward because it's you're, again, just like taking all these different influences and able to reference all kinds of cuisines from around the world in yeah a new, new style or, yeah, contemporary Pranakan food. It sounds so exciting. Thanks. Yeah, you know, Singaporeans are very, very adventurous eaters and, um, yeah, we all love biryani. We... Uh, Singaporeans, uh, Muslims, of course not, but lo lots of people love eating, you know, braised pork and things like that. So when I was thinking of how I could make this very traditional dish sort of more modern and um, something that people would really want to eat, this came to mind. So I, I just sort of invited some food writers over, you know, some friends, and I said, look, try this and see what you think. And everyone, it was very unanimous that this was something that everyone liked. So... I'm very glad about that and that's always on the menu now. Mm, so good. When I come, you're definitely making that, okay? <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I, might not, I might not give you the misyam because I'm kind of sick of making it. but <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. As long as I get one of your classics, I'll be happy. <laughs> Uh, but I, I know that you've you've written a lot about restaurants over the years and uh, it's something that I'm thinking a lot about as someone who also writes about restaurants is, you know, what do you think the place of restaurant criticism is in a post-COVID world? Do you think there's a changing role for food writers? I do, actually. Um, I think for the longest time, uh, the whole food critic thing uh, has, has or has to evolve. It has evolved some, but it really has to evolve from being this judge that comes in somewhere and just has a meal and decides whether it's nice or not. And really food is subjective, isn't it? Um, I might like one thing and you might not. Um, and where else, what other industry do you find um, that something is just so out there for everyone's judgment, you know? 
I, I can't, apart from art, which, which not even the general public would critique, food is one of those things that anyone can critique, right? So, and it's very demoralizing for the makers because no one sets out to make you bad food, right? So I think um, more and more food writers and food critics really need to understand what goes behind the meal, the stories behind the chefs and the people who make the meal. Um, and in this day and age, not to criticize, but to encourage and to put a spotlight on people who are really doing things that are particularly special, whether in terms of the stories or the provenance or, or the way the food is made. I think um, the backstory of uh, a restaurant or a hawker or whoever makes the food or a dish is very important these days, as opposed to just sitting down and saying, you know, this is supposed to be this way, why is it not? Mm, I, comp I completely agree. I think it's so important and also so interesting for us as writers to to learn about the context of the food and to learn why something is the way it is. Um, what is that person trying to express? You know, what is the heritage that has brought them to this place? So I think it's a really, it's endlessly rich and it's much more fun as a writer to tell those stories than to say, yep, it's good. Nope, it's not good. I think it's a it's a much, uh, yeah, it's richer for everybody, I think. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if you feel the same way, but now that I both cook and write and, and cook semi-professionally, I think it's important for people who are going to critique um, uh, the food that they spend some time in the kitchen and understand what the experience is like as a cook um, before actually sitting down and... and <laughs> and say, you know, that was not nice, but why was it not nice? Or that was really good. Why was it really good, right? Right. It's given you a new appreciation for the art of cuisine. And I suppose the role of consistency, you know, we're as, as home cooks and as as, re as restaurant cooks, everyone's dealing with produce that varies with, you know, weather conditions or, yeah, whether, I don't know, I think the mood that you're cooking can affect the food as well. So I think there's all kinds of variables that go into it, aren't there? Exactly. And now with um, uh, with the supply chains broken across the world, you know, a lot of it depends on you may get this ingredient today, you may not find it tomorrow. And how do you improvise and how do you carry on without these things that you've become that you've taken for granted? Mm, so true. Uh, so, Annette, tell me how you feel about the future in Singapore. Does it feel like you, you know, the pandemic is more or less behind you? Does it feel like it's good times around the corner or is it going to be a slow climb? Um, I think, you know, Singapore being such a small country, we are very dependent on, on um, how other countries are doing, right? Because our domestic market is, is small. Our, we don't have a lot of natural resources. So we do depend on um, imports and exports and all of those things in industry. So, I mean, locally on the ground, I would say, yes, things are definitely looking up. You know, the fact that we can go out and enjoy life as we did, maybe in smaller groups of people, is, is a wonderful thing, you know, having experienced um, what it was like in the early days of the virus. Um, and I think that's as much as we can hope for, right, one day at a time. And uh, we would just, uh, we have some talk about Singapore opening its borders uh, to certain uh, countries and they are recommending that Singaporeans can go to New Zealand, although I don't know if New Zealand's allowing Singaporeans in just yet. But, you know, talk like that, this is, is giving us hope for sure. Um, we definitely need more of an economy um, and that, again, depends on the world. But, yeah, I think 
life is life is good we cannot complain at this point i'm so happy to hear it i really feel like as i'm sitting here in stage four lockdown in melbourne i i'm so happy to hear about this and i know that when i'm sitting in a singapore hawker market with some prawn noodles and that's that's just my second lunch and then i'm going to have a dinner and then i'm coming to you for my second dinner then i will really feel like the world is, (laughs) is getting back to normal and i can eat what I want, where I want, when I want. <laughs> Fantastic. Yes, in the Singaporean context, you know, we can't wait till the day that we can go, you know, down to, to Yara for a wine tasting and all of that as well. I love it. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Annette, for sharing your perspective with us today. It's just a thrill to jump into your steamy Singapore world for a little while. Um, and yeah, thanks for giving us the, the Singapore Bulletin today. Really fantastic to talk to you. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production. <laughs>